Okay, turn with me to Matthew 9. When I last spoke, we were looking at verses 1 to 8 uh, in uh, the story here of Jesus' healing of a paralytic. And uh, the chapter starts with a transitional verse in verse 1. We, uh, I'm going to do, because it's been a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a little bit more review to just get you up back up to speed where we were. But it begins with a transitional verse. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So he's just healed this demon-possessed man, uh, actually men on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He gets back in a boat and proceeds back to the west and came to his own city. And you might think his own city is referring to Nazareth, the town in which he grew up, uh, where he worked as a carpenter before starting his ministry. But after he had announced his ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth, what happened? He was rejected. He was, they tried to kill him, tried to throw him over a cliff. And uh, uh, he went left and he settled in Capernaum. And so uh, that's the city he's talking about, Capernaum. And it's very likely he took up residence in the house of Peter. And uh, before he crossed the Sea of Galilee, the miracles that he had been doing in Capernaum and the surrounding area had generated massive uh, crowds of people. They're following him everywhere. He's healing all kinds of diseases, casting out demons, doing all types of mighty works, and the crowds are building and building. And now when he comes back, it's only natural to assume another large crowd is going to come to wherever he is. And so as he comes back to Peter's house, that's precisely what happened. So he's in the house. It's As we saw last time, it's very possible they were upstairs. In those days, it was common to build a two-story house, and on the second floor was a large room where social gatherings took place. And on top of the upper room was the roof. And they were flat. They were made with beams covered with a layer of branches, covered over with a thick layer of mud plaster or clay tiles. Uh, and they were actually quite sturdy. And almost every home had an outside staircase that went up the side of the house to access the roof. And that roof became a place to sleep and rest during the hot summer nights. And so on this occasion, Jesus is in the house, which is described probably a lot like I just described, and the crowd has literally jammed the house. They're all packed into the upper room, and there's no room to even turn around. Everyone's jammed in there. The Lord's there teaching them. Mark and Luke tell us that included among the crowd uh, were some scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. And then all of a sudden, an amazing event takes place, and that's what we see beginning in verse 2, and that is that some friends come, and it says they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed and seeing their faith. And we'll stop there. So it, we're seeing the friend's faith. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us who brought this man to Jesus, but Mark tells us it was four men who were carrying him. They were at the very least good friends of his or perhaps family members. And they're carrying him on a bed or stretcher. Uh, he was a man who was paralyzed. We aren't told how or why. Just that this man was paralyzed, un unable to walk or use his legs at the very least. He may have been a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. We just don't know. But it's apparent that this was a severe paralysis because he was completely dependent upon his friends and family members to carry him on the bed. 
Um, and his bed or stretcher would have been a wooden frame, two long poles with a cross poles at the head and foot and with ropes that were tied across from one cross pole to the other. And then they would put a pallet on the ropes and carry him on that stretcher bed. And in the Jewish culture, as we saw before in biblical times, almost all sickness, all illness and tragedy and the like were thought to be the result of sin in the life of the individual involved or possibly in the lives of his parents or grandparents. And so in his mind and in the mind of the people who saw him, they would consider his paralysis to be a vivid demonstration of God's judgment on him for his sin. And so this paralyzed man not only suffered from the incapacitation and disability, but he also suffered from the stigma that went with it, that he he suffered with an overwhelming sense that he was sinful. Uh, and so it would not be uncommon for such people to seek to be left alone, to avoid being around crowds. But this man wants to come to Jesus. He wants to be healed. He believes his sin has caused God to judge him with paralysis. He wants both forgiveness and healing. And so his friends take him to Jesus. Both Mark and Luke tell us that when these four guys arrived with their friend on the stretcher, there was no room to get through the crowd to get to Jesus. So they took the stairs to the roof. And once there, they removed the tiles. They dug a hole through the branches and mud under them and lowered this paralyzed man down into the center of the room right in front of Jesus. And then all three synoptic gospels record that seeing their faith, Jesus began speaking to the paralyzed man. They obviously had faith that Jesus could heal him because look at the effort they went through to get this man in front of Jesus. They clearly believed that Jesus could do something about the man's condition. They had to carry him all the way there. They had to climb the staircase with him on the stretcher, which would not be an easy thing to do. And then tile by tile, they remove this hole, make a hole in the roof. And so they had persistent, insistent, in, in, uh, inventive faith. And Jesus saw it. And then we come to the next point, which is Jesus' forgiveness. It says there in verse, second part of verse 2, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And we saw that the two words Jesus used here, the first he uses a word which means to be courageous, to be confident. Uh, it's a word which says there's nothing to be afraid of. There's absolutely nothing to fear. So be courageous. And that's... He doesn't say to him, hey, grit your teeth and master your fear. No, instead he says, child, what are you afraid of? There's nothing to fear here. And then the second word he uses is translated son here, but it's commonly translated child. Uh, it's a word of infinite tenderness. Here's a man who's overwrought with his sin. He's paralyzed. The theology of his day tells him it's because of his sin. Uh, he, the society has stigmatized him as a sinner who's under God's judgment. He knows he's a sinful man. He believes that this man, Jesus, has the power of God. He has the faith as a sinner to go before this man who he recognizes has power from God to heal people and to take his, and he's going to take his chances and he's afraid. And that's why the Lord says to him, take courage, child, stop being afraid. There's nothing to fear. He's shaken with grief. He's overcome with fear. He's burdened with guilt. Whether or not his paralysis was truly the result of his sin is not the issue. He believed it was. And so his sin was of great concern to him. And he knows that Jesus can heal him. In fact, he and his friends firmly believe 
that Jesus can and will heal him. But there's still an issue of sin that's burdening his heart and mind. And Jesus says, don't worry, take courage. There's nothing to be afraid of. And he responded to that man's faith. And then Jesus says these words. And this is where we stopped last time. We want to pick up there. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Folks, there are no more significant words that Jesus could speak to anyone. Uh, that is a divine miracle that ranks above uh, any other divine miracle. What an eloquent statement. Uh, remember now, the text doesn't record that the man said anything. Personally, I don't think he said anything, although his friends may have been shouting down through the hole in the roof, please, Rabbi, heal our paralyzed friend. Uh, but how did the Lord know that the real burden of his heart that was overwhelming him was the sense of sin that he felt that had resulted in his disability? Because the Lord knows the heart. All through this account, he reads the heart. He read the heart of the man who's sick. He reads the hearts of the scribes. Uh, he can read the heart of anyone. He knows the request before it's ever asked. He's the giver of all good who gives before we can even articulate it. And so he says, your sins are forgiven before the man can even speak. Now, the word which is translated here forgiven is a Greek word, which means to dismiss or to send away. Jesus says, your sins are dismissed. They are sent away. And when the Lord sends our sins away, Psalm 103.12 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19 says he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 34 records that God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's forgiveness. A couple of weeks ago, I said there was only a couple of people in his room that might have heard about this next word I'm going to talk about up here. I don't know, but when Moravian missionaries first went to the northern part of Alaska, they, uh, they went to the Eskimos, more correctly the Inuit people, and they were trying to translate the Bible into their native language. And they discovered that there was no word for forgiveness in their language. And so they were stuck because it's the major message of Christianity that God forgives sin. But after much work with the Inuits, they decided to take a group of words from the Inuit language and combine them into a single word. It's isu magi jujun nai nirmik, which means, listen to this, not being able to think about it anymore. And that's the word that became the word for forgiveness in the Inuit language, in the Inuit Bible. Uh, God's not able to think about it anymore. Uh, he has removed it. He has dismissed it. Jesus forgave his sins. The Lord gave to him the greatest gift meant to deal with his greatest need. And that's the message of Christianity. It's the forgiveness of sin. And you must know that our message must be about sin and about the forgiveness of sin. Preaching on sins considered negative in our culture today. Uh, but if we don't preach that message, we have prostituted the gospel. Uh, John, 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin's defiling. It has blotted out God's image and stained the soul. Sin is rebellion against God. 
Sin is gross ingratitude to God. Sin is incurable. Jeremiah asked the question, can the Ethiopia, Ethiopian change his spots or the leopard is, change his skin or the leopard his spots? And then he said, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, if the Ethiopian can change the color of his skin or a leopard can change his spots, yeah, then, then possibly you could do good. But we know that's impossible. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is deep in the heart of man. Even regenerate man still fights against sin. Any of you that went sinless this week? <laughs> no, we know that. Sin dominates the mind. It perverts the will. It stains the affections. It pollutes the body. Uh, sin brings men, man under the dominion of the devil. It brings man under the wrath of God. It's, it's true of all men, and thus the best news you could ever hear is that God can forgive sin and does forgive, and this man is living proof. And when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, think about this. He must have had a foretaste of Calvary in his heart because he knew that the only way that man's sins could be forgiven was for him to bear that man's sins on the cross. All through his life, every time he forgave sin, he knew full well he would bear the punishment that he had removed from that helpless soul. And you say, well, Jesus told that man his sins were forgiven, but maybe this man never trusted him as his Savior. Well, folks, that can't be true because Jesus would never have made that statement unless he knew that it would have been effective for that man. Uh, he knew that man believed and trusted in him. How can I say that? Because when Christ died on the cross, he didn't die just to make salvation possible for everyone but rather his death was an effective propitiation that satisfied God's wrath against those sinners who had been chosen from before the foundation of the world to be God's children and provided for the forgiveness for their sin. He didn't just make salvation possible for them. He actually obtained eternal redemption for them. They were the only ones to whom Jesus can make the statement, your sins are forgiven. So when Jesus said these words to that paralytic, he knew that that man was among the elect for whom he would die. And so we've seen the faith of the paralytic and his friends and the forgiveness of Jesus. Now we come to the scribe's accusation in verse 3. It says, And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Luke tells us also that there were some Pharisees from several other villages in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem who were also present. And they began to mentally accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Luke 5.21 records their thinking this way. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Mark 2.7 records very similar thoughts by the scribes and Pharisees. Now listen, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Micah 4.25 and, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 4, 43.25 and Micah 7.18 and 19 tell us that. But because they refused to recognize Jesus' divinity, they could only conclude that he was blaspheming. Unlike the paralytic, these men saw no need for forgiveness because they considered themselves to already be righteous. They resented Jesus offering forgiveness, not only because they didn't believe he was God, but also because they considered it unjust 
for a person to be forgiven simply by asking for it instead of earning it. So they thought they, uh, they, thought they had already earned it. And for somebody just to be given forgiveness was outrageous to them. The two great barriers to salvation that have always, have always been, one, refusal to recognize the need for it, and two, the belief that it can be earned or deserved. Uh, you can preach a message on forgiveness, and only a few will stay and open their heart to Christ. Most will leave. They're not interested. They don't know the need. They don't recognize the problem. They're not willing to accept the forgiveness. So they say, well, only God can forgive sins. And by this man saying that he forgives sins, he's claiming to be God. And thus he is a blasphemer. Uh, you see, to them, the ultimate blasphemy would be to claim to be God. Therefore, to tell someone that their sins are forgiven is to say something that only God can say. And thus, that is the ultimate blasphemy. Unless, of course, you are God. Uh, you, and notice verse 3. They said to themselves, Mark says they were reasoning in their hearts. Uh, they didn't even speak. And that will become important in the next verse because we will see that Jesus read their thoughts. Which is, by the way, another mark of the omniscience of Christ. He knew what was in the heart of the paralyzed man. He knew what was in the heart of the mind, the mind and thinking of those others as well. He could read minds because he is God. Now, by this time in his ministry, the scribes and Pharisees had probably seen many miracles that Jesus had done and heard the testimony of others who had been uh, healed of disease and cleansed of demons, but they refused to recognize his power as coming from God, much less uh, that he himself was God in flesh. And so their thinking, this man blasphemes, simply reflects the pattern of growing rejection and persecution by the Jewish leaders that ultimately led to Jesus' persecution uh, and crucifixion. Uh, they accused him of blasphemy here in verse 3. Look down at verse 11. There they accuse him of being immoral for associating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, in other words, he runs around with a bad crowd, so he must be a bad man. Uh, he's a blasphemer and he's immoral. And then the culminations in verse 34. Uh, but the Pharisees were saying he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. In other words, he's demonic. So their accusations just pile up one on top of the other. He's a blasphemer, he's immoral, he's demonic. What a contrast to the paralytic and his friends, right? There, there we find faith and the result is forgiveness. On the other hand, we find accusations of blasphemy and a hardness of heart. And Jesus is the focal point of both. There's, that's the way it always is. Christ comes with a message of love and grace and forgiveness. And there are those who recognize it and receive it and rejoice in it. And there are those who hate it and despise it and become infuriated by it. That brings us to the next aspect of the story, which is Jesus' reasoning. Let's read beginning in verse 4 and go in the first part of verse 6. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We'll stop there. You know, you hear people all the time who say, Well, Jesus was a great man, but obviously he isn't God. 
Well, then, I don't know how he knew their thoughts. Uh, John two twenty five says he did not need to any he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. First Samuel sixteen seven says the Lord looks at the heart. First Kings eight thirty nine Solomon said you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. First Chronicles twenty eight nine David said the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Jeremiah seventeen ten. God said, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. And in Ezekiel 11, the Spirit of the Lord named certain leaders of Israel who were devising iniquity and giving evil advice. And in verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord, So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. God knows everything we think. And Jesus knew what these scribes and Pharisees were thinking. So he says, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Now, what does he mean by that? He meant that they were plotting against him in their hearts. They were accusing him of blasphemy. What was the penalty for blasphemy? <clears throat> death. Under the Mosaic law, it was death by stoning. They couldn't get away with that under Roman law, but they would eventually convince Pilate to authorize his execution by crucifixion. So an evil heart is a heart that plots against God, and that's what they were doing. Now watch his argument in verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Well, now they're stuck. You notice that they don't give an answer. Because there is no answer, because neither is easier. Both are impossible for man. Both are possible for God. He says, in effect, do you think it's impossible for me to forgive sins? Is one easier than the other? They knew they couldn't say either one. He can, either, he can do either with the same divine ease. They're both just as easy to him. God doesn't sweat at doing anything. Only God can truly heal. Only God can forgive sins. And they were the ones who taught that disease and sickness were the result of sin. And so two things were inseparable. One who could heal diseases could forgive sins. And one who could forgive sin could also heal disease. If they thought about it, their own theology taught them that. So he says, which is easier, to forgive or to heal? And the answer is that neither is easier. Both are impossible to them. So Jesus is saying, look, you're stuck. If I can do one, I can do the other. And if I can do the other, I'm not a blasphemer, I'm God. So they're trapped. He knew he could, they knew he could heal because they'd already seen that previously. And when he said, it's, is it easier to forgive? They couldn't say yes because it wasn't. Only God could do that. It just shows you that their rejection was a willful rejection against the truth. If Jesus put away sickness, disease, and demons, and disasters, and death, he could certainly deal with sin. Now I've just explain to you the way to look at that verse from the viewpoint of which is easier to do. But there's another interesting way to look at this verse. And that's from the standpoint of which is the easier to say. Okay? Let me read it a different way. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up and walk. 
Now, from the viewpoint of which is easier to do, the answer is neither. But from the viewpoint of to say, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because if I walked up to you and said, your sins are forgiven, there's no way for that to be proven, right? It's, it's easy to say. But if one of you comes to me paralyzed in a wheelchair and I say, get up and walk, it's going to be pretty easy to verify that I can't do that. You see, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven if all you're going to do is say it. So watch verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's saying, I will demonstrate my power to heal disease. You can't see the results of my forgiveness, but you can easily see the results of my healing. So in order that they might know that he could forgive sin, which they could not see, he did what they could see by healing, by dealing with sin symptoms. And notice that phrase, that the Son of Man has authority on earth. Why did he express it that way? Why do they need to know that? Because, you see, the scribes and Pharisees knew the Old Testament predictions that miraculous healings would accompany the Messiah when he came to earth to establish his kingdom. So he's explaining why he is going to heal this man. It is a demonstration that he is the Messiah who has come to earth and is offering them the kingdom. If all he had said was, your sins are forgiven, no one could verify what happened. But to make the paralyzed man able to walk would give proof for everyone to see. Just like seeing 2,000 pigs run off a cliff to their death proved that the demons had indeed gone from the two possessed men into the pigs, uh, just as Jesus had given them permission to do. And so here's the same thing. He is healing the man as proof of his power to forgive. But it was the forgiveness that was the root and the disease that was the symptom. If he could do one, he could do the other. Any pretender can come along and say, your sins are forgiven. And he wants to make sure they're not thinking that he's just saying it. So he proves it. By doing the visible, he manifests the power to do the invisible. The man was only healed incidentally as a proof of Jesus' ability to forgive his sin. That brings us to our fifth point, which is the paralytic's healing. Let's continue with verse 6 and 7. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. Let me just remind you that this entire incident uh, in all three synoptic gospels, in this incident, the only person who's recorded as speaking is Jesus. Uh, nothing from the paralytic, nothing from his four friends, nothing from the scribes or Pharisees, only Jesus. Like I said before, there may have been some words from his friends that his friends said, which he and his friends said before Jesus started speaking, but once he made his statement about the man's sins being forgiven, it seems like everyone fell silent except Jesus. This is a very dramatic scene, but he reads their minds, he nailed them to the wall with his reasoning, 
And now he says, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Uh, as the old King James says, rise, take up your bed, and go home. I used to tell my children in the morning, rise, make up your bed, and go home. <laughs> get going. Go to school. The guy gets up, rolls up his pallet, picks up the wooden frame, walks out. You better believe that whole crowd instantly created an aisle for him to walk out. And then when he got outside, can you imagine what went on when his four buddies came running down the stairs on the outside? They must have run and skipped and danced all the way home. Think of the power. Jesus has the power to forgive our sin, and that's far better than healing our diseases. But someday he'll do that too, right? Well, that brings us to the last aspect of this miracle, and that's the crowd's fear. The crowd's fear. Look at verse 8. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is the most important application. You see that word awestruck? Other versions use the word afraid. It's the Greek verb phobeo. Uh, the noun form is phobos, uh, from which we get our English word phobia. What is a phobia? It's an extreme fear of something, right? Uh, but the most common use of this word in the New Testament is that of a great reverential awe, not cringing fright. It, it expresses the feeling of a person who is in the presence of someone infinitely superior. It's the word that was used of the disciples' reaction when they saw Jesus walking on the water. Luke used the word to describe the disciples' reaction when he stilled the storm. It's used to describe the crowd's reaction after Jesus raised the deceased son of the widow at Nain. It's used by Luke to describe the people's response to Jesus when he cast out demons from the two men in Gerizim. It's used of the response of John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, when he saw an angel of the Lord beside the altar. It's used again of the spectators when he recovered his speech. Uh, it's used of the shepherds when they heard the angels announcing Christ's birth. It's used of the guards at the tomb when the angel rolled the stone away. It's used of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary when they left the empty tomb after the angels spoke to them of Christ's resurrection. It's used of mankind's fear during the shattering events of the last days during the tribulation. It's used of the reaction of the people in the church to the death of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. In total, the word phobeo is used 95 times in Scripture, and the noun phobos is used 47 times. It's to be afraid, to fear, and most often to be awestruck with reverential fear of God. You know, we should be awestruck with a person and character of Jesus Christ. The same word is used in Acts 9.31 where it says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear, phobos, of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That ought to describe us too. 
It is essential that we be in awe of Christ. Let me tell you why. As you read the Gospels, you see the power of God in Christ's miracles, and you see the fear that accompanied them. In the book of Acts, you see the power of God in the apostolic miracles and the fear that accompanied them. And then as the epistles unfold further revelation to us, they apply that response of reverential fear to our behavior. For example, it's the source of a virtuous life. 1 Peter 3.2 says that unsaved wives are to be submissive to their unsaved husbands so that they might possibly be saved as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That word respectful there, ladies, is the word fabas. As their unsaved husbands observe the reverential, respectful behavior of their wives, they might come to Christ. It's also the source of holiness. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says we are to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In 2 Corinthians 7.11, it's that which brings about true repentance. In Philippians 2.12, we're told to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. In Ephesians 5.21, husbands and wives are told to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.11, it's the motivating power of evangelism. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. In 1 Timothy 5.20, we're told to publicly rebuke elders who continue in sin so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. This fear, this, this phobos, this reverential awe of God is the substance out of which all Christian behavior is to come. I'm afraid that very often we who have been believers for many years, who have read and studied the miracles of Jesus in the scriptures many times, we've become desensitized to the awesome character and person of Jesus Christ. We don't marvel at his works. They're just words on a page to us. Uh, we don't have a reverential fear of his majesty. We're not astounded on a daily basis by his presence in our lives through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And consequently, we don't have the kind of fear of God that we need in order to grow into greater holiness, greater repentance, greater submission, greater evangelism, greater Christ-likeness. So this crowd here in Matthew 8 stood there as that paralyzed man walked out of their midst and they were awestruck. And what's the result? It says they glorified God who had given such authority to men. We don't know how many, if any, of the crowd understood that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God. But they all recognized that no man could do what he had done unless he did it by the power and authority of God. They knew he was a man, and they recognized that God was the one who empowered him to heal that paralytic. They didn't understand the doctrine of the kenosis, that is, that Jesus was God in flesh who had laid aside the divine privileges that were his in heaven and came to earth as a man. They'd never heard of the doctrine of the hypostatic union, 
That is that Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God at the same time. But they knew that the man who was sitting there in front of them had just healed a paralyzed man and that he had done so by the power of God. And so they were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now listen to this. In verse 6, just before he healed that man, Jesus told the crowd that was mentally accusing him of <clears throat> blasphemy, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he healed the man. His purpose in healing the man was so that they would recognize that he had the authority to forgive sins. Now in verse 8, after Jesus healed the man, the crowd is glorifying God. Why? Because he had given such authority to men. The question is, were they glorifying God because he had given the authority to forgive sins to Jesus or because he had given Jesus the authority to physically heal? Sadly, I believe they missed the greater miracle in this story. The greater miracle is that Jesus forgave this man's sins. But they were all excited because the man was physically healed. I'm sure when they hear, heard Jesus say, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven, some of them were confused because it sounded like such an odd thing to say. But we know that the scribes and Pharisees were mentally accusing him of blasphemy, blasphemy for making himself equal with God. So I think they missed the greater miracle that occurred that day. That man literally walked out of the room as a forgiven sinner while most of the crowd sat there stunned and praising God for giving the authority to heal to Jesus. But they still remained lost in their sins. They missed the most significant part of the miracle. Folks, the greatest message we have to give is that Jesus forgives sin. It isn't that Jesus can heal your broken marriage or Jesus can restore your health or Jesus can find you a spouse or Jesus can find you a new job. It's that he forgives sin. Too many people, when they try to evangelize, turn Jesus into some kind of genie who can solve all your problems in life but they never get to the point of telling the person that he or she is a sinner who needs a savior and that there's only one savior who can forgive sins and it's Jesus. When that incident was over that day and the crowd broke up and went its way, I'm sure a few of them recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and went away trusting in him. But most of the crowd, most of the people in that crowd, were just fickle curiosity seekers. They were there for the show. They had heard about this miracle working rabbi and so they came to hear him trying to figure out what all the excitement was about. And when the miracle occurred, they were excited to be able to see it. And they knew that God had done it and they didn't consider at all the message that, of Jesus forgiving sin. And then there are those who were outraged and angry that he would make such a claim to have the audacity to tell that man that his sins were forgiven. 
So you can really divide this crowd into three groups, the forgiven, the fickle, and the furious. <laughs> and those are the same people that you will encounter today when you start proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ offers forgiveness, but most people just walk away amazed at the stories of his power, but unwilling to give up their sin. <clears throat> Others become angry and accusatory against him, rejecting him and his message as offensive and intolerant of others. But there's always, there's always that small crowd of those who want to hear the message of the forgiveness of their sin because they're burdened by it. And the Holy Spirit has prepared their heart to receive it. And they're the reason we're to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel that Jesus offers forgiveness and he washes away all sin, past, present, and future. And that's the greatest news that they can ever hear. And that brings us to the end of this passage. And obviously, given the amount of time that's left, I'm not going to dive into the next one. But before we go, before we just wrap it up, are there any comments or questions or applications that you see for this, what we've been talking about today? Yes. Do you think that the fact that he told them that his sin was forgiven and that healed him might have confirmed to some of those people that his condition was caused by sin? That's always a possibility. And, and for all we know, it was. We don't know. There's not enough information in the story. But that wasn't really what Matthew was trying to accomplish. He's trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah who does not only bring healing, but he also forgives sin. He's, that's what he's showing. So that was his greater purpose. Anything else? Yes. Uh, would you agree uh, I, on this issue of fearing God? Uh, I have likened it to fear of parents that children know, teenagers, even teenagers know that their parents love them and they want the best for them. They might question the parents' judgment, but they do fear the parents. The expression that I like is if my father finds out, he will kill me, <laughs> which they both know is an exaggeration, obviously. Well, Your view. I, I think... That's true if the parents are loving parents who also demonstrate that. Well, at as well. Yes, but but I you know maybe it's my background. <laughs> I've just worked too many cases in the past where fathers were they're all unregenerate, mean, nasty, alcoholic fathers who who did horrible things to their children. And their children feared them, but it was out of a, a fear of, of the pain that they would go through with those horrible fathers. On the other hand, a father who is loving and cares for his children and demonstrates that in various ways, and yet he's a disciplinarian who will hold their feet to the fire when necessary, and they fear him in that way, yeah, there's a similarity there. But, well, but this is a reverential this is this is a reverential awe of God who is holy and set apart and nothing like us 
in any way, shape, or form. So, yes? When we talk about sin in this group, we collectively know what sin is. But backing up to what you said earlier about us not not doing like uh, evangelism like we mm -hmm. should, I'm not sure in, in the world of people that I know that people would think they're sinners. They just think, oh, that's life. That's the way I was born. They don't really see their need for a savior because they don't think they're sinners. Well, it. let's put it this way. They know in their heart they are because God says he's written his law on their heart. And his law says, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, etc., etc. And that's why I've always found that uh, the method of metho methodology of evangelism, which Ray Comfort developed quite well, where he asked people, you know, well, have you ever, uh, Jesus said that if you looked on a woman with lust in your heart that you committed the sin of adultery, have you ever done that? Uh, have you ever uh, stolen anything? You know, so, so, Ten Commandments say you don't take the Lord's name in vain. Have you ever done that? And that is his way of showing them they're a sinner. And they've fallen short of, he said, because he also says, be therefore perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. And they know they're not. And so God's written his law in their heart. And so whether they admit they're sinners or not, in their heart they know it. Because God's law is written there. It's a matter of getting them to admit it by a series of questions like that. But first, I'm not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Compared to Hitler, I'm a great soldier. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is our world. That is our world. I saw it. Lisa, was your hand up earlier? No, okay. All right. Well, our time is up. Frank, please close us in prayer. Our gracious Father, we bow before you.